Chapter Ten, Bush Trade and Fan Customs of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley. Chapter Ten, Bush Trade and Fan Customs. Wherein the voyager, having fallen among the black traders, discourses on these men and their manner of life, and the difficulties and dangers attending the barter they carry on with the bush savages, and on some of the reasons that makes this barter so beloved and followed by both the black trader and the savage, to which is added an account of the manner of life of the Fan tribe, the strange form of coinage used by these people their manner of hunting the elephant, working in iron, and such like things. I spent a few lazy, pleasant days at Agonjo, Mr. Glass doing all he could to make me comfortable, though he had a nasty touch of fever on him just then. His efforts were ably seconded by his good lady, an exceedingly calmly gaboon woman, with pretty manners and an excellent gift in cookery. The third member of the staff was the storekeeper, a clever fellow. I fancy a loango from his clean-cut features and spare make, but his tribe I know not for a surety. One of these black trader factories is an exceedingly interesting place to stay at, for in these factories you are right down on the bedrock of the trade. On the coast, for the greater part, the white traders are dealing with black traders, middlemen, who have procured their trade stuff from the bush natives, who collect and prepare it. Here in the black trader factory you see the first stage of the export part of the trade, namely the barter of the collected trade stuff between the collector and the middleman. I will not go into details regarding it. What I saw merely confirmed my opinion that the native is not cheated, no, not even by a fellow African trader, and I will merely here pause to sing a pian to a very unpopular class, the black middleman, as he exists on the southwest coast. It is impossible to realize the gloom of the lives of these men in bush factories unless you have lived in one. It is no use saying they know nothing better and so don't feel it, for they do know several things better, being very sociable men, fully appreciative of the joys of a coast town, and their aim, object, and end in life is, in almost every case, to get together a fortune that will enable them to live in one, give a dance twice a week, card parties most nights, and dress themselves up, so that their fellow coast townsmen may hate them, and their townswomen love them. From their own accounts of the dreadful state of trade, and the awful and unparalleled series of losses they have had, from the upsetting of canoes, the raids and robberies made on them and their goods, by those awful bush savages, you would, if you were of a trustful disposition, regard the black trader with an admiring awe as the man who has at last solved the great commercial problem of how to keep a shop and live by the loss nay, not only live, 
but build for himself an equivalent to a palatial residence and keep up not only it but half a dozen wives with a fine taste for dress every one of them i am not of a trustful disposition and i accept those losses with a heavy discount and know most of the rest of them have come out of my friend the wide trader's pockets still i can never feel the righteous indignation that i ought to feel when i see the black trader down in a seaport town with his nancy etc as sir w h s gilbert classically says because i remember those bush factories mr glass however was not a trader who made a fortune by losing those of other people for he had been many years in the employ of the firm he had risen certainly to the high post and position of charge of the rembwe but he was not down giddy flying at gaboon his accounts of his experiences when he had been many years ago away up the still-known nguni river in a factory in touch with the lively bakele then in a factory among fans and igalwa on the ogowe and now among fans and skekaini on the rembwe were fascinating and told vividly of the joys of first starting a factory in a wild district the way in which your customers for the first month or so enjoyed themselves by trying to frighten you the trader out of your wits and goods and into giving them fancy prices for things you were trading in and for things of no earthly use to you or any one else the trader's existence during this period is marked by every unpleasantness save dullness from that he is spared by the presence of a mob of noisy dangerous thieving savages all over his place all day invading his cook-house to put some nastiness into his food as a trade charm helping themselves to portable property at large and making themselves at home to the extent of sitting on his dining-table at night those customers proceed to sleep all over the premises with a view to being on hand to start shopping in the morning. Woe betide the trader if he gives in to this and tolerates the invasion, for there is no chance of that house ever being his own again, and in addition to the local flies, etc., on the tablecloth, he will always have several big black gentlemen to share his meals. If he raises prices to tide over some extra row, he is a lost man, for the africans can understand prices going up but never prices coming down and time being no object they will hold back their trade then the district is ruined and the trader along with it for he cannot raise the price he gets for the things he buys what that trader has got to do is to be a devil man they always kindly said they recognized me as one which is a great compliment he must betray no weakness but a character which I should describe as a compound of the best parts of those of Cardinal Rochelieu, Brutus, Julius Caesar, Prince Metternich, and Mezzofanti, the latter to carry on the native language part of the business, and he must cast those customers out, not only from his house but from his yard, and adhere to the no-admittance-except-on-business principle. This causes a good deal of unpleasantness, and the trader's nights are now cheered by lively war-dances outside his stockade, the accompanying songs advertising that the customers are coming over the stockade to raid the store, and cut up the trader into bits like a fish. Sometimes they do come, and then finish, but usually they don't, and gradually settle down, 
and respect the trader greatly as a devil-man, and do business on sound lines during the day. Over the stockade at night, by ones and twos stealing, they will come to the end of the chapter. Moonlight nights are fairly restful for the bush trader, but when it is inky black, or pouring with rain, he has got to be very much out and about and particularly vigilant, has he got to be on tornado nights, a most uncomfortable sort of weather to attend to business in, I assure you. The factory at Agonjo was typical. The house is a fine specimen of the Igalwa style of architecture, mounted on poles above the ground, the space under the house being used as a store for rubber in barrels and ebony in billets, thereby enabling the trader to hover over these precious possessions, sleeping and waking, like a sitting hen over her eggs. Near to the house are the sleeping places for the beach hands and the cook-house. In front, in a position commanded by the eye from the veranda, and well withdrawn from the stockade, are great piles of billets of red bar-wood. The whole of the clean sandy yard containing these things, and divers others, is surrounded by a stout stockade, its main face to the river frontage, the water at high tide lapping its base, and at low tide exposing in front of it a shore of black slime. Although I cite this factory as a typical factory of a black trader, it is a specimen of the highest class, for, being in connection with Messrs. Hatton and Cookson, it is well kept up and stocked. Firms differ much in this particular. Messrs. Hatton and Cookson, like Messrs. Miller Brothers in the Bites, take every care that lies in their power of the people who serve them, down to the crew boys working on their beaches, giving ample and good rations, and providing good houses. But this is not so with all firms on the coast. I have seen factories belonging to the Swedish houses beside which this factory at Agonjo is a palace, although those factories are white man factories, and the unfortunate white men in them are expected by these firms to live on native chop, an expectation the agents by no means realize, for they usually die. Black hands, however, do not suffer much at the hands of such firms, for the Swedish agents are a quiet, gentlemanly set of men in the best sense of that much-misused term, and they do not employ on their beaches such a staff of black helpers as the English houses, so the two or three crew boys on a starvation beach can fairly well fend for themselves, for there is always an adjacent village, and in that village there are always chickens, and on the shore crabs, and in the river fish, and for the rest of his diet the crew boy flirts with the local ladies. Although, as I have laid down, the bush factory at its best is a place, as Mr. Tracy Tupman would say, more fitted for a wounded heart than for one still able to feast on social joys. It is a luxurious situation for a black trader, compared to the other form of trading it deals with, that of travelling among the native villages in the bush. This has one hundred times the danger, and a thousand times the discomfort, and is a thoroughly unhealthy pursuit. The journeys these bush-traders make are often remarkable, and they deserve great credit for the courage and enterprise they display. Certainly they run less risk of death from fever than a white man would, but on the other hand their color gives them no protection, and their chance of getting murdered is distinctly greater, 
The white governmental powers cannot revenge their death, in the way they would the death of a white man, for these murders usually take place away in some forest region, in a district no white man has ever penetrated. You will naturally ask how it is that so many of these men do survive to lead a life of sin, as a missionary described to me their coast-town life to be. This question struck me as requiring explanation. The result of my investigations and the answers I have received from the men themselves show that there is a reason why the natives do not succumb every time to the temptation to kill the trader and take his goods, and this is twofold. Firstly, all trade in West Africa follows definite routes, even in the wildest parts of it, and so a village far away in the forest, but on the trade route, knows that, as a general rule, twice a year, a trader will appear to purchase its rubber and ivory. If he does not appear somewhere about the expected time, that village gets uneasy. The ladies are impatient for their new clothes, the gentlemen half-wild for want of tobacco, and things coming to a crisis, they make inquiries for the trader down the road, one village to another, and then if it is found that a village has killed the trader and stolen all his goods, there is naturally a big palaver, and things are made extremely hot, even for equatorial Africa, for that village, by the tobaccoless husbands of the clothesless wives. Herein lies the trader's chief safety, the village not being an atom afraid or disinclined to kill him, but afraid of their neighboring villages and disinclined to be killed by them. But the trader is not yet safe. There is still a hole in his armor, and this is only to be stopped up in one way, namely by wives, for you see, although the village cannot kill him and take all his goods, they can still let him die safely of a disease and take part of them, passing on sufficient stuff to the other villages to keep them quiet. Now the most prevalent disease in the African bush comes out of the cooking pot, and so to make what goes into the cooking pot, which is the important point, for earthen pots do not in themselves breed poison, safe and wholesome, you have got to have someone who is devoted to your health to attend to the cooking affairs, and who can do this like a wife. So you have a wife, one in each village up the whole of your route. I know myself one gentleman whose wives stretch over three hundred miles of country, with a good wife base in a coast town as well. This system of judiciously conducted alliances gives the black trader a security nothing else can, because naturally he marries into influential families at each village, and all his wife's relations on the mother's side regard him as one of themselves and look after him and his interests. That security can lie in women, especially so many women, the so-called civilized man, may ironically doubt, but the security is there, and there only, and on a sound basis, for remember the position of a traveling trader's wife in a village is a position that gives the lady prestige. The discreet husband showing little favors to her family and friends, if she asks for them when he is with her, and then she has not got the bother of having a man always about the house, and liable to get all sorts of silly notions into his head, if she speaks to another gentleman, and then go and impart these notions to her with a cutlass, or a casengo, 
as the more domestic husband, I am assured by black ladies, is prone to. You may now, I fear, be falling into the other adjacent error, from the wonder why any black trader survives, namely into the wonder why any black trader gets killed, with all these safeguards and wives. But there is yet another danger, which no quantity of wives nor local jealousies avail to guard him through. This danger arises from the nomadic habits of the bush tribes, notably the Fan. For when a village has made up its mind to change its district, either from having made the district too hot to hold it, with quarrels with neighboring villages, or because it has exhausted the trade stuff, i.e., rubber and ivory in reach of its present situation, or because some other village has raided it, and taken away all the stuff it was saving to sell to the black trader, it resolves to give itself a final treat in the old home, and make a commercial coup at one fell swoop. Then when the black trader turns up with his boxes of goods, it kills him, has some for supper, smokes the rest, and takes it and the goods, and departs to found new homes in another district. The bush trade I have above sketched is the bush trade with the fans. In those districts on the southern banks of the Ogowe, the main features of the trade and the trader's life are the same, but the details are more intricate, for the Igalwa trader from Lembarene, Fernan Vaz, or Ndole, deals with another set of trading tribes, not first-hand with the collectors. The fan villages on the trade routes may, however, be regarded as trade depots, for to them filters the trade stuff of the more remote villages, so the difference is really merely technical, and in all villages alike the same sort of thing occurs. The Igalwa, or Impongwe trader, arrives with the goods he has received from the white trader, and there are great rejoicing and much uproar as his chests and bundles and demijohns are brought up from the canoe, and presently, after a great deal of talk, the goods are opened. The chiefs of the village have their pick, and divide this among the principal men of the village, who pay for it in part with their store of collected rubber or ivory, and take the rest on trust, promising to collect enough rubber to pay the balance on the next visit of the trader. Thereby the trader has a quantity of debts outstanding in each village, liable to be bad debts, and herein lies his chief loss. Each chief takes a certain understood value in goods, as a commission for himself, nieno, giving the trader as a consideration for this an understood bond to assist him in getting in the trust granted to his village. This nieno he utilizes in buying trade stuff from villages not on the trade route. Among the fans the men who have got the goods stand by with these to trade for rubber with the general public and bachelors of the village, in a way I will presently explain. In tribes like Ajumbas, Aduma, etc., the men having the goods travel off, as traders, among their various bush tribes, similarly paying their nieno, and so by the time the goods reach the final producing men, only a small portion of them is left, but their price has necessarily risen. Still it is quite absurd for a casual white traveller who may have dropped in on the terminus of a trade route to cry out regarding the small value the collector, who is often erroneously described as the producer, gets for his stuff 
compared to the price it fetches in Europe. For before it even reaches the factory of the coast settlement, that stuff has got to keep a whole series of traders. It appears at first bad that this should be the case, but the case it is along the west coast of the continent save in the districts commanded by the Royal Niger Company, who with courage and enterprise have pushed far inland, and got in touch with the great interior trade routes, a performance which has raised in the breasts of the coast trader tribes who have been supplanted a keen animosity, which, like most animosity in Africa, is not regardful of truth. The tribes that have had the trade of the Bite of Biafra passing through their hands have been accustomed, according to the German government who are also pressing inland, to make seventy-five per cent profit on it, and they resent being deprived of this. A good deal is to be said in favor of their views, among other things, that the greater part of the seaboard districts of West Africa, I may say every part from Sierra Leone to Cameroon, is structurally incapable of being self-supporting under existing conditions. Below Cameroon, on my beloved southwest coast, which is infinitely richer than the Bight of Benin, rich producing districts come down to the sea in most places until you reach the Congo. But here again the middleman is of great use to the interior tribes, and if they do have to pay him seventy-five per cent, serve them right. They should not go making wife palaver and blood palaver all over the place to such an extent that the inhabitants of no village, unless they go in mass, dare take a ten-mile walk, save at the risk of their lives in any direction, so no palaver live. We will now enter into the reason that induces the bushmen to collect stuff to sell among the fans, which is the expensiveness of the ladies in the tribe. A bush fan is bound to marry into his tribe, because over a great part of the territory occupied by them there is no other tribe handy to marry into, and a fan residing in villages in touch with other tribes has but little chance of getting a cheaper lady. For there is, in the Congo Francais and the country adjacent to the north of it, Badanga, a regular style of aristocracy, which may be summarized firstly thus. All the other tribes look down on the fans, and the fans look down on all the other tribes. This aristocracy has subdivisions. The Mpongwe of Gaboon are the upper circle tribe. Next come the Benga of Corisco, then the Bapuka, then the Banaka. The system of aristocracy is kept up by the ladies. Thus, a Mpongwe lady would not think of marrying into one of the lower tribes, so she is restricted, with many inner restrictions, to her own tribe. A Benga lady would marry a Mbongwe, or a Benga, but not a Banaka, or Papuka, and so on with the others, but not one of them would marry a Fan. As for the men, well, of course they would marry any lady of any tribe, if she had a pretty face, or a good trading connection, if they were allowed to. That's just man's way. To the southeast, the Fans are in touch with the Bagele, a tribe that has much in common with the Fan, but who differ from them in getting on in a very friendly way with the little dwarf people, the Matimbas, or Watwa, or Akoa, people the Fans cannot abide. With these Bagele, the Fan can intermarry, but there is not much advantage in so doing, as the price is equally high. 
but still marry he must. A young fan-man has to fend for himself, and has a scratchy kind of life of it, aided only by his mother until, if he be an enterprising youth, he is able to steal a runaway wife from a neighboring village, or, if he is a quiet and steady young man, until he has amassed sufficient money to buy a wife. This he does by collecting ebony and rubber and selling it to the men who have been allotted goods by the chief of the village from the consignment brought up by the black trader. He supports himself, meanwhile, by, if the situation of his village permits, fishing and selling the fish, and hunting and killing game in the forest. He keeps steadily at it in his way, reserving his roisterings until he is settled in life. A truly careful young man does not go and buy a baby girl cheap, as soon as he has got a little money together, but works and saves on until he has got enough to buy a good, tough widow lady, who, although personally unattractive, is deeply versed in the lore of trade, and who knows exactly how much rubbish you can incorporate in a ball of India rubber without the white trader or the black bush factory trader instantly detecting it. When the fan young man has married his wife in a legitimate way on the cash system, he takes her round to his relations and shows her off, and they make little presents to help the pair set up housekeeping. But the young man cannot yet settle down, for his wife will not allow him to. She is not going to slave herself to death doing all the work of the house, etc., and so he goes on collecting, and she preparing trade stuff and he grows rich enough to buy other wives. Some of them young children, others widows, no longer necessarily old. But it is not until he is well on in life that he gets sufficient wives, six or seven. For it takes a good time to get enough rubber to buy a lady, and he does not get a grip on the ivory trade until he has got a certain position in the village, and plantations of his own which the elephants can be discovered raiding, in which case a percentage of the ivory taken from the herd is allotted to him. Now and again he may come across a dead elephant, but that is of the nature of a windfall, and on rubber and ebony he has to depend during his early days. These he changes with the rich men of his village for a very peculiar and interesting form of coinage, bikei, little iron imitation axe-heads which are tied up in bundles called ntet ten going to one bundle, for with bikei must the price of a wife be paid. You do not find bikei close down to Libreville, among the fans who are there in a semi-civilized state, or more properly speaking in a state of disintegrating culture. You must go for bush. I thought I saw in bikei a certain resemblance in underlying idea with the early Greek coins I have seen at Cambridge, made like the four parts of cattle and I have little doubt that the articles of barter among the fans before the introduction of the rubber, ebony, and ivory trades, which in their districts are comparatively recent, were iron implements. For the fans are good workers in iron, and it would be in consonance with well-known instances among other savage races in the matter of stone implements, that these things, important of old, should survive, and be employed in the matter of such an old and important affair as marriage. They thus become juju, and indeed all West African legitimate marriage, although appearing to the casual observer a mere matter of barter, is never solely such, 
but always has juju in it. We may as well here follow out the whole of the domestic life of the fan, now we have got him married. His difficulty does not only consist in getting enough biquet together, but in getting a lady he can marry. No amount of biquet can justify a man in marrying his first cousin or his aunt, and as relationship among the fans is recognized with both his father and his mother, not as among the Igalwa, with the latter's blood relations only, there are an awful quantity of aunts and cousins about from whom he is debarred. But when he has surmounted his many difficulties and dodged his relations and married, he is seemingly a better husband than the man of a more cultured tribe. He will turn a hand to anything that does not necessitate his putting down his gun outside his village gateway. He will help chop firewood, or goat's chop, or he will carry the baby with pleasure, while his good lady does these things, and in bush villages he always escorts her so as to be on hand in case of leopards or other local unpleasantness. When inside the village he will lay down his gun within handy reach, and build the house, tease out fibre to make game nets with, and plate baskets or make pottery with the ladies, cheerily chatting the while. Fan pottery, although rough and sun-baked, is artistic in form and ornamented, for the fan ornaments all his work. The articles made in it consist of cooking-pots, palm-wine bottles, water-bottles and pipes, but not all water-bottles nor all pipes are made of pottery. I wish they were, particularly the former, for they are occasionally made of beautifully plated fibre-coated, with a layer of a certain gum with a vile taste, which it imparts to the water in the vessel. They say it does not do this if the vessel is soaked for two days in water, but it does, and I should think contaminates the stream it was soaked in into the bargain. The pipes are sometimes made of iron very neatly. I should imagine they smoked hot, but of this I have no knowledge. One of my Ajumba friends got himself one of these pipes when we were in Efuwa, and that pipe was, on and off, a curse to the party. Its owner soon learned not to hold it by the bowl, but by the wooden stem, when smoking it. The other lessons it had to teach he learnt more slowly. He tucked it, when he had done smoking, into the fold in his cloth, until he had three serious conflagrations raging around his middle. And to the end of the chapter, after having his last pipe at night with it, he would lay it on the ground before it was cool. He learned to lay it out of reach of his own cloth, but his fellow Ajumbas, and he himself persisted in always throwing a leg onto it shortly after, and there was another row. The fan-basket work is strongly made, but very inferior to the fjord-basket work. Their nets are, however, the finest I have ever seen. These are made mainly for catching small game, such as the beautiful little gazelles, Ncheri, with dark grey skins on the upper part of the body, white underneath, and satin-like in sleekness all over. Their form is very dainty, the little legs being no thicker than a man's finger, the neck long and the head ornamented with little pointed horns and broad round ears. The nets are tied on to trees in two long lines, which converge to an acute angle, the bottom part of the net lying on the ground. Then a party of men and women, accompanied by their trained dogs, which have bells hung around their necks, beat the surrounding bushes, and the frightened small game rush into the nets and become entangled. 
The fiber from which these nets are made has a long staple, and is exceedingly strong. I once saw a small bush cow caught in a set of them, and unable to break through, and once a leopard. He, however, took his section of the net away with him, and a good deal of vegetation and sticks to boot. In addition to nets, this fiber is made into bags for carrying things in while in the bush, and into the water-bottles already mentioned. The iron work of the fans deserves especial notice for its excellence. The anvil is a big piece of iron which is embedded firmly in the ground. Its upper surface is flat and pointed at both ends. The hammers are solid cones of iron, the upper part of the cones prolonged so as to give a good grip, and the blows are given directly downwards, like the blows of a pestle. The bellows are of the usual African type, cut out of one piece of solid but soft wood. At the upper end of these bellows there are two chambers hollowed out in the wood, and then covered with the skin of some animal, from which the hair has been removed. This is bound firmly round the rim of each chamber, with tai-tai, and the bag of it at the top is gathered up and bound to a small piece of stick, to give a convenient handhold. The straight cylinder terminating in the nozzle has two channels burnt in it, which communicate with each of the chambers respectively, and halfway up the cylinder there are burnt from the outside into the air passages three series of holes, one series on the upper surface and a series at each side. This ingenious arrangement gives a constant current of air up from the nozzle when the bellows are worked by a man sitting behind them and rapidly and alternately pulling up the skin-cover over one chamber, while depressing the other. In order to make the affair firm it is lashed to pieces of stick, stuck in the ground in a suitable way, so as to keep the bellows at an angle, with the nozzle directed towards the fire. As wooden bellows like this, if stuck into the fire, would soon be aflame, the nozzle is put into a cylinder made of clay. This cylinder is made sufficiently large at the end, into which the nozzle of the bellows goes, for the air to have full play round the latter. The fan bellows only differ from those of the other iron-working West Coast tribes in having the channels from the two chambers in one piece of wood all the way. His forge is the same as the other forges, a round cavity scooped in the ground. His fuel also is charcoal. His other smith's tool consists of a pointed piece of iron with which he works out the patterns he puts at the handle-end of his swords, etc. I must now speak briefly on the most important article with which the fan deals, namely ivory. His methods of collecting this are several, and many a wild story the handles of your table-knives could tell you if their ivory has passed through fan hands for ivory is everywhere an evil thing before which the quest for gold sinks into a parlour game, and when its charms seize such a tribe as the fans, conclusions pass their careers. A very common way of collecting a tooth is to kill the person who owns one. Therefore, in order to prevent this catastrophe happening to you yourself when you have one, it is held advisable, unless you are a powerful person in your own village, to bury or sink the said tooth, and say nothing about it, until the trader comes into your district, or you get a chance of smuggling it quietly down to him. 
Some of these private ivories are kept for years and years before they reach the trader's hands, and quite a third of the ivory you see coming on board a vessel to go to Europe is dark from this keeping, some teeth a lovely brown like a well-coloured meerschaum, others quite black, and gnawed by that strange little creature, much heard of and abused, yet little known in ivory ports, the ivory rat. Ivory, however, that is obtained by murder is private ivory. The public ivory trade among the fans is carried on in a way more in accordance with European ideas of a legitimate trade. The greater part of this ivory is obtained from dead elephants. There are in this region certain places where the elephants are said to go to die. A locality in one district pointed out to me as such a place was a great swamp in the forests a swamp that evidently was deep in the middle, for from out its dark waters no swamp plant or tree grew, and evidently its shores sloped suddenly, for the band of swamp plants round its edge was narrow. It is just possible that during the rainy season, when most of the surrounding country would be under water, elephants might stray into this natural trap and get drowned, and on the drying up of the waters be discovered, and the fact being known, be regularly sought for by the natives, cognizant of this. I inquired carefully whether these places where the elephants came to die always had water in them, but they said no, and in one district spoke of a valley or round-shaped depression in among the mountains. But natives were naturally disinclined to take a stranger to these ivory mines, and a white person who has caught, as any one who has been in touch must catch, ivory fever is naturally equally disinclined to give localities. A certain percentage of ivory collected by the fans is from live elephants, but I am bound to admit that their method of hunting elephants is disgracefully unsportsmanlike. A herd of elephants is discovered by rubber hunters or by depredations on plantations, and the whole village, men, women, children, babies, and dogs, turn out into the forest and stalk the monsters into a suitable ravine, taking care not to scare them. When they have gradually edged the elephants on into a suitable place, they fell trees and wreathe them very roughly together with bush rope, all round an immense enclosure, still taking care not to scare the elephants into a rush. This fence is quite inadequate to stop any elephant in itself but it is made effective by being smeared with certain things, the smell whereof the elephants detest so much that when they wander up to it they turn back disgusted. I need hardly remark that this preparation is made by the witch-doctors and its constituents, a secret of theirs, and I was only able to find out some of them. Then poisoned plantains are placed within the enclosure, and the elephants eat these and grow drowsier and drowsier, if the water supply within the enclosure is a pool, it is poisoned, but if it is a running stream, this cannot be done. During this time the crowd of men and women spend their days round the enclosure, ready to turn back any elephant who may attempt to break out, going to and fro to the village for their food. Their nights they spend in little bough shelters by the enclosure, watching more vigilantly than by day, as the elephants are more active at night, it being their usual feeding time. During the whole time the witch-doctor is hard at work making incantations and charms, with a view to finding out the proper time to attack the elephants. 
in my opinion his decision fundamentally depends on his knowledge of the state of poisoning the animals are in but his version is that he gets his information from the forest spirits when however he has settled the day the best hunters steal into the enclosure and take up safe positions in trees and the outer crowd set light to the ready-built fires and make the greatest uproar possible and fire upon the staggering terrified elephants as they attempt to break out the hunters in the trees fire down on them as they rush past the fatal point at the back of the skull being well exposed to them when the animals are nearly exhausted those men who do not possess guns dash into the enclosure and the men who do reload and join them and the work is then completed one elephant hunt i chanced upon at the final stage had taken two months preparation and although the plan sounds safe enough there is really a good deal of danger left in it with all the drugging and juju there were eight elephants killed that day but three burst through everything sending energetic spectators flying and squashing two men and a baby as flat as botanical specimens the subsequent proceedings were impressive the whole of the people gorged themselves on the meat for days and great chunks of it were smoked over the fires in all directions a certain portion of the flesh of the hind leg was taken by the witch-doctor for juju and was supposed to be put away by him with certain suitable incantations in the recesses of the forest his idea being apparently either to give rise to more elephants or to induce the forest spirits to bring more elephants into the district Dr. Nassau tells me that the manner in which the ivory gained by one of these hunts is divided is as follows. The witch-doctor, the chiefs, and the family on whose ground the enclosure is built, and especially the household whose women first discovered the animals, decide in council as to the division of the tusks and the share of the flesh to be given to the crowd of outsiders. The next day the tusks are removed and each family represented in the assemblage cuts up and distributes the flesh. In the hunt I saw finished, the elephants had not been discovered, as in the case Dr. Nassau above speaks of, in a plantation by women, but by a party of rubber hunters in the forest some four or five miles from any village, and the ivory that would have been allotted to the plantation holder in the former case went in this case to the young rubber hunters. Such are the pursuits, sports, and pastimes of my friends the fans. I have been considerably chafed, both by whites and blacks, about my partiality for this tribe, but as I like Africans in my way, not a la Sierra Leone, and these Africans have more of the qualities I like than any other tribe I have met, it is but natural that I should prefer them. They are brave, and so you can respect them, which is an essential element in a friendly feeling. They are on the whole a fine race, particularly those in the mountain districts of the Sierra del Cristal, where one continually sees magnificent specimens of human beings, both male and female. Their color is light bronze. Many of the men have beards, and albinos are rare among them. The average height in the mountain districts is five feet six to five feet eight the difference in stature between men and women not being great. Their countenances are very bright and expressive, and if once you have been among them you can never mistake a fan. But it is in their mental characteristics that their difference from the lethargic, dying-out coast tribes is most marked. The fan is full of fire. 
temper, intelligence, and go, very teachable, rather difficult to manage, quick to take offence, and utterly indifferent to human life. I ought to say that other people who should know him better than I say he is a treacherous, thievish, murderous cannibal. I never found him treacherous, but then I never trusted him, remembering one of the aphorisms of my great teacher, Captain Bowler, of Bonny. It's not safe to go among bush tribes, but if you are such a fool as to go, you needn't go and be a bigger fool. Still, you've done enough. And Captain Bowler's other great aphorism was, Never be afraid of a black man. What if I can't help it? said I. Don't show it, said he. To these precepts I humbly add another. Never lose your head. My most favorite form of literature, I may remark, is accounts of mountaineering exploits, though I have never seen a glacier or a permanent snow mountain in my life. I do not care a row of pins how badly they may be written, and what form of bubble-puppy grammar and composition is employed, as long as the writer will walk along the edge of a precipice, with a sheer fall of thousands of feet on one side, and a sheer wall on the other, or better still, crawl up an arrate with a precipice on either. Nothing on earth would persuade me to do either of these things myself, but they remind me of bits of country I have been through where you walk along a narrow line of security, with gulfs of murder looming on each side, and where in exactly the same way you are as safe as if you were in your easy chair at home, as long as you get sufficient holding ground, not on rock in the bush village inhabited by murderous cannibals, but on ideas in those men's and women's minds, and these ideas which I think I may say you will always find, give you safety. It is not advisable to play with them, or to attempt to eradicate them, because you regard them as superstitious, and never, never shoot too soon. I have never had to shoot, and hope never to have to, because in such a situation one white alone with no troops to back him means a clean finish. But this would not discourage me if I had to start, only it makes me more inclined to walk around the obstacle than to become a mere blood-splotch against it, if this can be done without losing your self-respect, which is the mainspring of your power in West Africa. As for flourishing about a revolver and threatening to fire, I hold it utter idiocy. I have never tried it, however. So I speak from prejudice which arises from the feeling that there is something cowardly in it. Always have your revolver ready loaded in good order, and have your hand on it when things are getting warm, and in addition have an exceedingly good bowie knife, not a hinge knife, because with a hinge knife you have got to get it open. Hard work in a country where all things go rusty in the joints, and hinge knives are liable to close on your own fingers. The best form of knife is the bowie, with a shallow half-moon cut out of the back at the point end, and this depression sharpened to a cutting edge. A knife is essential, because after wading neck-deep in a swamp, your revolver is neither use nor ornament until you have had time to clean it. But the chances are you may go across Africa, or live years in it, and require neither. It is just the case of the gentleman who asked if one required a revolver in Carolina, and was answered, You may be here one year, and you may be here too, and never want it, but when you do want it, you'll want it very bad. 
The cannibalism of the Fans, although a prevalent habit, is no danger, I think, to white people, except as regards the bother it gives one in preventing one's black companions from getting eaten. The Fan is not a cannibal from sacrificial motives like the Negro. He does it in his common-sense way. Man's flesh, he says, is good to eat, very good, and he wishes you would try it. Oh, dear, no, he never eats it himself, but the next-door town does. He is always very much abused for eating his relations, but he really does not do this. He will eat his next-door neighbor's relations and sell his own deceased to his next-door neighbor in return, but he does not buy slaves and fatten them up for his table, as some of the middle Congo tribes I know of do. He has no slaves, no prisoners of war, no cemeteries, so he must draw your own conclusions. No, my friend, I will not tell you any cannibal stories. I have heard how good M. Du Chalu fared after telling you some beauties, and now you come away from the Fen village and down the Rembwe River. End of chapter 10 Bush Trade and Fen Customs Read by Kainde of Bahatrek.com